please pray with me. Oh, Father, we do bless your holy name. And, Lord, we desire that all things would be to the praise of your glory, as you have promised, Father, eternally, even now, all things are to the praise of your glory. And, Father, we desire, especially here this morning, as we open the book of Ephesians together, Father, that we would learn to a greater degree, Father, that our hearts would be aflame, even as our minds are engaged, Father, to understand better what is your glory in the church, in Christ Jesus. Father, as, as you gave me the privilege of studying this text this week, uh, I reflected more than once on how it is, as Spurgeon liked to say, Father, that this represents the believer's checkbook. And Father, if these riches are ours, if this indeed is our checkbook, Father, there is no way to possibly exhaust and there's no way to possibly even preach the riches that are ours in Christ. And so, Father, would you help, as Randy prayed, our feeble efforts, Father, mind to, to preach, and all of us to hear and to submit our hearts. Father, we know that in ourselves this is impossible. But, Father, we also know and we trust and we call on your promise that you would send your Spirit, Father, as we will see, to seal us, to seal these truths in our hearts in such a way that we will, from a whole heart, Bless your holy name. Father, make it so this morning, and Father, always in your people that we would have this heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, a lot of you, and I know this for a fact because Rodney just asked, <laughs> are probably wondering why we're not in Genesis 12 this morning. So let me give a brief explanation. Uh, and some of you have heard me blame Pastor Keith Christensen for this because I looked this up, and it was two and a half years ago, February of 2020, weeks before COVID, that we were in Genesis 1. And actually, when it came time to post that message, uh, Keith was still posting our media back then, and he labeled in the app, he labeled the series Genesis 1 to 11. So it's his fault. <laughs> no, not really. Don't tell Keith it's his fault. Uh, no, it's, and it, Keith probably did that because it's not unusual for pastors to preach just the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Uh, for example, MacArthur did that years ago, just the first 11 chapters. Uh, but we want to ask, you know, is that legitimate? And if so, why? Why do pastors preach just the first 11 chapters? Why does this pastor preach just the first 11 chapters? And the answer is, at least in part, that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are what we often refer to as prehistory. The first 11 chapters, Moses sort of flies through 2,000 years or so of human history, world history. Starting in chapter 12, things slow way down to the point where the next 39 chapters are focused on one family and just the first 500 years or so of that family or that nation's existence. And you guys probably already know this, even though we haven't gotten into Genesis 12. Who do we meet in Genesis 12? Abraham. Right? And so the rest of Genesis is focused on how does God's promise to Abraham start to unfold in the nation or for the nation of Israel, which is descended from Abraham. Now, why, we might ask, does that happen? Why is there this zoom in, this focus on Abraham and his family in the rest of the 39 chapters? Why does it go so fast through 2,000 years and then slow way down for 39 chapters? And the answer to that is, 
this is God's plan for salvation at the beginning of its outworking through the nation Israel. Now, God, we see throughout the Old Testament, he really spends the the rest of the Old Testament on this plan, the saving plan for Israel. So, what does that have to do with us jumping from Genesis 11 into the book of Ephesians? Well, the answer to that is that Ephesians is probably the main place in the New Testament that focuses on God's plan, which he, of course, is unfolding throughout the Old Testament. But Ephesians focuses on God's plan for salvation in this age. So we're taking sort of a laser focus, what we've seen in prehistory, and jumping to, okay, what is the import of this for God's plan for redemption in our age? And so, what Paul describes in Ephesians is, it says in verse 10, this is an administration for the fullness of the times. Ephesians, as I said, is the main place in the New Testament, and this is the main place in the New Testament where we see God's plan for and through the church gloriously being put on display. And as we start this study, you need to know, and this is what I want to really drive home this morning, that this letter from Paul the Apostle is about you. Paul is is writing to the saints, but it is not just to the saints in general. And in this letter, it is to the saints where? Ephesus. As Paul goes on to list what we'll see, the glories that are ours in Ephesians 1, he is applying them all to the local church. And as just as much as this is the glory that is the local church in Ephesus, even so, this is the breathtaking glory, you see on the title, the breathtaking glory of Calvary Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. God wants you, his local church, to know the truth about the riches of your salvation in Christ so that you will know, and this is verse 19 of chapter 1, We need to know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of the might of his strength. Brothers and sisters, we need this. And we need it every day, of course, but by God's grace, I think this is his special provision for us right now. Pastor Terry Enns talked about this some when he preached for us recently, that the church is still the church regardless of leadership changes. And so if there was ever a season in the life of Calvary Bible Church where we need to be reminded of who and what we are, if ever there was a season when we need to remember how glorious this body is, what a miracle Calvary Bible Church is, this is one of those seasons. And as we'll see, God, through the Apostle Paul, intends these theological truths concerning the church to be for our spiritual and practical strengthening. And I'll just mention right now, it works out practically, especially when you get to the last three chapters of Ephesians, 4 through 6. This is is the truth. Paul wants us to understand, God wants us to understand theologically what we are so that we can be empowered to be the people he wants us to be practically. Now before we jump further into Ephesians, uh, I should give you a little heads up that we'll spend a bit more time than usual on introduction this morning. Something you may already know about Ephesians is that Paul's mind seems to be absolutely blown 
over the glories God has given him to reveal to us here. He talks in chapter 1 about how these glories of the church were a mystery. Chapters 1 and 2 both talk about the eternal and heavenly realities working themselves out here. Verse 10, he says, This is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. By every measure, and this continues to be the case, especially through the first three chapters, Paul clearly sees what's happening that he's revealing here in Ephesians. He sees this as something with enormous, eternal, and cosmic ramifications. And so, in order to understand what is so mind-blowing to Paul about all of this, we actually need to go back, and this is where it's convenient that we've been in Genesis, we're going to go back and trace some themes that start in Genesis. And we're going to spend some time tracing those things to Deuteronomy, then to Ezekiel, and you don't have to write this down, we'll get there, and then to John, and then finally to Ephesians. So, buckle up and get your Bibles ready. There will be some flipping. And I'm not going to ask you to turn to each of those texts, uh, but we'll spend enough time in each one that, that you certainly can if you'd like to. So first, Genesis. And that one's easy, right at the front. Recall from Genesis 1 and 2 that God made man in his image. And man, as God's image, was to be, faithful, to be fruitful and multiply. Man, as the image of God, was to spread from Eden, spreading the image and mediating the goodness and the blessing and the life of God from Eden to the whole earth. But as we saw, starting in Genesis 3, that's not exactly what happened. Instead of life and blessing, man chose and became to the creation death and curse. And although God gave the first promise of the Messiah in Genesis 3.15, that did not keep death and sin from spreading. By Genesis 6, things were so bad that God brought devastating flood judgment in order to remove a measure of that corruption and to grant a measure of renewal to the earth through Noah. Then in chapters 10 and 11 of Genesis, we see further restraints of sin going forward. Human lifespans decrease, and then God confuses language and starts using nations to fulfill his purposes of both restraining sin and bringing salvation going forward. Now, as I said, God starts in chapter 12 of Genesis to work through Abraham specifically. And he sets things in place for the nation of Israel to become his special chosen nation, to be his means for blessing the whole world. So what was originally intended with Adam, God says, I'm still going to do it, and I'm going to make a start here through Israel. And most of us know the story pretty well from Sunday school, I think. God brings Israel into Egypt, where they become numerous and they become slaves, and then he redeems them out of that slavery in the Exodus. Listen to what God says to Israel in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. So now then, if you will indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Israel was to be a kingdom of priests to all the other nations, mediating God's goodness and drawing the nations to God. However, we learn as the Old Testament continues, Israel never fully has the heart to obey God so that they will be blessed themselves and become a blessing to the world. 
Listen to these words from Deuteronomy 29, starting in verse 2. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that Yahweh did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants in all his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. And here's the key, verse 4. Yet to this day, Yahweh has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. In the next chapter, Deuteronomy 30, listen to what God says in verse 6. And he's promising here big picture. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And here's what will happen once all of that happens to you, Israel. He says, Moreover, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of all your seed to love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. This, back in Deuteronomy 30, is the first example of the new covenant promise in the Old Testament. I want us to catch something here, an important distinction. These texts are talking about the status of Israel as an entire people. Okay? Moses is not saying here that nobody in Israel had ever had a circumcised heart. Moses himself had a circumcised heart. Every believer who's ever lived has had a circumcised heart. These texts are with reference to the whole people, okay? The whole people of Israel, Deuteronomy 29, did not have the heart to love God. But chapter 30, he promises that one day the whole people will have the heart. And of course, that promise gains more and more emphasis by the time of the prophets. You may be more familiar with this. New New covenant texts that come later, Jeremiah 31 to 33, and this here from Ezekiel 36. You probably recognize this language. Ezekiel 36, starting in in verse 26. Moreover, God says, speaking to Israel directly, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to do my judgments." By the time of the exile, which is when Ezekiel is writing, more or less, Israel, like Adam, had mediated curse to the world instead of blessing. But in the New Covenant, what we read here in Ezekiel 36, what we read in in Jeremiah 31 to 33, in the New Covenant, God promises to one day give his people a new heart and his spirit so that they would obey and be a blessing according to his original design. Now, to illustrate this and to drive it home a little further, I want us to think back one more time to the book of Genesis. Recall from Genesis 2 that there was a single water source that welled up from Eden. And that single water source brought water and life to the whole creation. And that was just like man was supposed to spread God's goodness and God's life and blessing to the whole earth. Those are closely connected there in that account in Genesis 2. But of course, as we've seen, man failed in this. When our first parents sinned, rather than spreading blessing outward like that single water source from Eden, they turned inward. That's the way Augustine and then later Martin Luther famously described it. The Latin phrase they used is incurvitus in se, to be curved in on oneself. You see, God made us to look and to curve outward. 
like him, to give our life and blessing to others to mediate goodness. But with Eve's first bite from the forbidden fruit, we curved inward. We curved inward to be takers. Or we might say it even a little less gently. We curved inward to be leeches or sponges. We look around us, and this is the heart of, of, of us as we become like that. We look around us and we ask, what do I want that I can take for myself? And we take it. And we take it, and we see this, of course, in the fall, and we see it in every example of sin after this. We take what we want, even if it means death for us and for others, which is what it does mean. That is a starving, parched, dry existence. It is that way for us because the creation can never quench our thirst. And it is that way for the creation as we try to suck out of it all the goodness we can. In this way, we became at the fall a curse to ourselves and to the world around us. Now with that in mind, I want to direct our attention next to the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 57, God is calling sinners to account for our failure to love and to give to others, specifically to the poor. God's people Israel were guilty of this, and he calls them to account for the fact that they practice fasting, but as usual in their fasting, their hearts were far from him. Continuing in chapter 58, God explains that the kind of fasting he is looking for is the kind that shows that his people are becoming givers rather than takers. If they have a heart like that, God says, they will feed the hungry and shelter the homeless and cover the naked. Instead of being takers, they will be givers. Listen to God's description, verse 10. If you offer your soul to the hungry and satisfy the soul of the afflicted, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your thick darkness will become like midday. And Yahweh will continually guide you and satisfy your soul in scorched places and fortify your bones. And then listen to this language, reminiscent of Eden. And you will be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Now from there, from the promises in the prophets that God's people would have a new heart and that they would become a water source in scorched places, with these things in mind, let's listen to these words from Jesus to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, and he's pointing, of course, to the water in the physical well in front of them. Everyone who drinks of this physical water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst, ever. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Okay, so... How does all of that serve as an introduction to Ephesians? I'm glad you asked. Man was originally made to be a blessing, but we sinned and became a curse. Israel was set apart to be the nation, God's nation's of, nation of priests, to bless all nations. But Israel chose disobedience and curse. Even so, God promised he would still accomplish his saving purposes which he would do by giving his whole people his spirit and a new heart to obey him. Well, what we learn in the New Testament, and most thoroughly here in the book of Ephesians, 
is that Israel is actually not the first people to get the heart. Who is the first people to get the heart? The church. You, Calvary Bible Church, have this privilege and this glory. You, the church, are the first people fully and irrevocably united to God. Let that sink in for a minute. You have the unspeakably glorious privilege of being the first people fully and irrevocably united to God. Now, with that in mind, I want to ask you to, to open to Ephesians 1, and I'm not going to ask you to stand, given how far we are into the sermon, uh, but read along with me verses 1 to 14 of Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him. For an administration of the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him. In him we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Brothers and sisters, Calvary, Bible Church. This is your glory. These are your riches. In the time we have left this morning, we're going to take a bit of a dive into these first 14 verses. And as we do, we're going to see three characteristics of the church's glory, starting with number one, a startlingly unexpected glory. Now, before we get into that, I want to just give a brief word about structure. Uh, you notice I said breathtaking in the uh, title there, and I think that is just, this is astounding on the one hand, but on, on another hand, uh, you may be familiar with the fact that uh, it's, it's often said the longest sentence in the Bible is verses 3 to 14, like Paul doesn't pause to take a breath. Uh, and while it's debatable, can that be broken into sentences like it is 
in our English Bibles, and I think, yes, it can be. There is definitely a sense in which Paul is going from glory to glory to glory to glory. And Randy and I were talking about this earlier. It is hard to sort of block this out into these verses have to do with this and these verses have to do with that. It can be done. As a matter matter of fact, my preferred way, if I were going to do that, would probably be to break it up into Trinitarian sections. Uh, There's a little bit more of an emphasis on the Father and then the Son and then the Spirit towards the end. Uh, But really, and this is going to be reminiscent of how we went through Genesis 1, uh, as one thing after another unfolded with regard to God's glory and the way he created by divine fiat, by his word there, this is just, again, sort of a breathless account by Paul. And so we'll, under number one, go through the text and hit elements that that show us uh, the unexpected glory Then we'll go through the text and hit the elements that show us the eternal plan, and then through the text and hit the elements that show us the astounding riches. So, number one, a startlingly unexpected glory. Uh, With the introduction I gave, you may already have in mind uh, some of the ways in which the church's glory is unexpected. But to explain that further, let's first think about the perspective, and this probably is the most important perspective in terms of Who was expecting the fulfillment of God's promises would be Israel. And we see uh, through many of Jesus' interactions with them that that Israel and the Jewish leaders assumed certain things about those who would be saved. They expected, first and foremost, that they would be devout and learned Jews. In John 9, the Jewish leaders chastised the man born blind because he believed Jesus and questioned their teaching. And listen to their response to to him in verse 34. They say, You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? And so they put him out of the synagogue. In a similar scene, similar theme anyway, in Luke 4, Jesus points out in the synagogue at Nazareth that God has always mercifully saved Gentiles, like the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian. You remember the Jews' response in that text, verses 28 and 29? All the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they stood up and drove him out of the city and led him to the edge of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. So, taking offense, really. Their expectation was it was Israel that was going to be saved. And even the suggestion otherwise was was abominable to them. Then, of course, there's Paul, the apostle writing this letter. What did Paul think of the idea that God's promise was coming true? Not yet for Israel, but first for a church that included Gentiles. Paul loathed that idea. To the point where he persecuted the church, as Luke records in Acts 7-9. And then, when Jesus shows up in a vision and convinces Paul that he is the Messiah, and the church is his body, what does the church think about the idea that Paul is now one of them? Now it's the church, specifically Ananias, who is skeptical. But it's true, even though it's unexpected, and it is, it's unexpected, but it's true. Paul is an apostle, and look at Ephesians 1, verse 1. Paul is an apostle sent by Christ with this glorious word to the saints. And that's Paul's first descriptor for the church here. As you may know, the word saints simply means set-apart ones. And again, where are these set-apart ones that Paul is writing to? Ephesus. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time describing Ephesus to you, but I do want to point out two things. 
first, and I mentioned this earlier, this localizes the focus. Again, this is why these glorious truths are seen to be addressed and to apply directly to the local church. This is the breathtaking glory of Calvary Bible Church. Secondly, I want to point out some things we know about Ephesus from another place in Scripture. In Acts 19, Paul visits Ephesus, and as was his custom, he goes first to the synagogue. As usual, Paul faces resistance from the Jews, but he ends up teaching, and this is unique to Ephesus. He teaches there for two years daily in the school of Tyrannus. Now, what we need to know from Acts 19 is that Paul's converts, as he taught in Ephesus, included Jews and Greeks. And that these people who were new converts were the ones who brought their magic books so that they could be burned. Further along in Acts 19, we read of the prominent place of the Temple of Artemis, which was at Ephesus. Now, there's much more that could be said here about Ephesus, but what I've mentioned should help us to see, again, how startlingly unexpected is the glory of the church. How much folly and idolatry there was among the Ephesians converted under Paul's ministry. They had spent a fortune on magic books. They worshipped Artemis and put their hope in some kind of artifact they believed had fallen out of heaven. This, this mixture of Jews and Gentiles, a group of foolish and superstitious idolaters, Paul says, Ephesians 1.10, is an administration of the fullness of the times. They become one people, verse 12, the first to have hoped in Christ. Have you ever wondered about that? Hadn't Old Testament saints believed in Christ? How can Paul claim that he and the church at Ephesus are the first to have hoped in Christ? Again, the key here is to realize that the church is the first whole people to be fully united to God through a new heart. Notice verse 9, how Paul refers to this. He calls it a mystery. You know what mystery means in this context? Mystery. The closest the Bible comes to describing this is from the text that Rod read before the service this morning. And you might recall I've said before, this is Paul's favorite verse to quote from in the Old Testament. Isaiah says this, God says this through Isaiah. Actually, this is the words of the Messiah speaking to the Father. Speaking of the Father. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to cause the preserved ones of Israel to return. I will also give you as a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That is the closest the Old Testament comes to describing the church. And notice it doesn't say the church would be first. It just says that salvation is not for Israel only. The church, Paul rightly says, was a mystery. Its glory is startlingly unexpected. Now, I want you to think for a moment about the implications of this unexpected glory for you. What do you see when you look in the mirror? Do you see someone who is strong, smart, noble? Do you see someone who is obviously worthy of glory? Do you see yourself as someone who has it all together, someone everyone else gathers around in order to make much of you? I hope not. As we know from so many other texts, that is the exact opposite of the kind of person God saves. God saves the foolish idolaters. God saves the weak and the foolish and the despised 
in order to shame the strong and the wise and the noble of this world. And he puts all of us unlikely misfits into one body together. And he gives us a new heart. He gives us his spirit so that we will love each other and serve each other and be united to each other in the most unlikely of ways. And beloved, this is, in, this is where it's important that we are a whole people. It's wonderful that there was a remnant in Israel, individual people who loved God. But do you know how lonely they were? Think of Jeremiah and the muddy cistern with his own people ignoring the word God had given him, torturing him and doing the exact opposite of what God said. Think of Elijah living by himself by the river, wanting to die because he knew the people of Israel, including the royal family, was against him. That was lonely. The remnant did get to be a blessing, but they lived it out among a covenant people that did not yet have the heart to love them back. And it showed. Friends, it is the unexpected glory of the church to be the first people with a new heart, a whole heart, to love God and to love each other. This should take away any reason any of us would have to feel lonely. Do you feel lonely or isolated? Look to your right and to your left. Look in front of you and behind you. You, you plural, you together have one heart and one spirit. You are a whole people in fulfillment of God's precious new covenant promise. You are a whole people with a new heart. And as Jesus says in John 13, 35, the world gets to see and be drawn to the way you love each other. This unlikely bunch of former idolaters, we've gone from being selfish to being generous. We've gone from keeping to ourselves and being afraid we would embarrass ourselves if we reach out. Now we give without any shame. We're generous. We take risks for each other. We spend for each other until it hurts. And what's craziest and most glorious about it is that nothing in this world could bring us greater joy. You, Calvary Bible Church, you are to each other, to your families, to your neighbors, to your coworkers, and to the world, you are like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. I get to talk to one of you on a Tuesday. Your neighbor sees you on a Saturday. Your friend from small group gets an encouraging text from you on a Friday. And we say, wow, Denny is like a cold drink of water on a hot day. Dennis is like a cool drink of water on a hot desert day. Josh is like a fountain of living water. Hearing from him is like hearing from heaven because he has the Spirit of God living in him. That is you, brothers and sisters. That is your startlingly unexpected glory. In addition to being unexpected, the glory of Calvary Bible Church is, number two, an eternally planned glory. Those are in tension with each other, aren't they? Glory that is unexpected and at the same time planned. I'm confident that's why Paul has this emphasis on predestination here in Ephesians 1. We often drop in here for that, don't we, to prove our reformed case for the doctrine of predestination or election. 
And yes, that is here, but why is that such an emphasis here? And I'll tell you, it's not just so that we'll have a convenient proof text of Reformed soteriology. Think again about how Paul's mind is obviously blown by everything he's revealing to the Ephesians. This was truly an unexpected mystery. No one saw this coming. If you had told it to them, they would have said it was highly unlikely. And so Paul and everyone else needs convincing that this was always the plan. It might have been unexpected to us and to the world, but it was far from unexpected to God. That is the reason for Paul's emphasis here on the eternally planned nature of the church's glory. This emphasis starts in verse 1 where Paul says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And notice from there, Paul appeals to God's will no fewer than three more times in these verses. Verse 5, this is according to the good pleasure of his will. Verse 9, the mystery of his will. Verse 11, it's the counsel of his will. And this emphasis doesn't stop there. Not only is the church's unexpected glory God's will, it is according to his eternal plan and decree. Verse 4, he chose us in Christ, he chose the church in Christ before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us. Verse 9, this is according to God's good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Verse 11, again, we were predestined. How many references is that to God's will, purpose, choice, and predestination? I counted them. Ten times, no less than ten times at least, in 14 verses. That is some emphasis. From a human perspective, this may be an unexpected glory. From God's perspective, it is meticulously, eternally planned. So what should be our takeaways from this? How should it affect us to know that our glory... The glory of Calvary Bible Church is eternally planned. Although we could probably spend the rest of the day expanding on how we are helped by the knowledge of God's electing, predestining plan, I want to point out two specific ways this helps us. First, we should be humbled by this. What hope could a broken cistern have of becoming a fountain of living water? This is possible only by God's gracious electing act. We were helpless. Our own will was helpless to do anything to save us. But God's electing love, his will for our salvation, was set upon us from eternity. God's electing love was set on Calvary Bible Church, this gathering of former fools and idolaters. His electing love was set on us from all eternity. He worked to save us and to pursue us while we were still sinful, rebellious, lowly, weak, and foolish idolaters. The fact that he planned this eternally, given what you were in yourself and what I am in myself, we should be humbled by this. Secondly, the knowledge of God's eternal plan to make us the first people irrevocably united to him this knowledge should give us confidence and hope and joy and certainty. It ensures that everything God has promised will come to pass. There is no doubt he will save us. He will save you. 
He will save me. He will save us to the uttermost. Brother and sister, because the glory of Calvary Bible Church is God's eternal plan, you can have confidence that what he has established as his purpose, he will carry out to completion. And as the rest of Ephesians unfolds, this will add to your confidence that God is saving you and will continue to complete that work. And he's doing it, and he will do it, in the context of and as part of the breathtaking glory of Calvary Bible Church. This is his plan, and he has staked the glory of his own name on it. He will finish gloriously what he has started. So the glory of Calvary Bible Church is unexpected. Secondly, it is eternally planned. It is, number three, an unfathomably rich glory. I want you to think again about what you were apart from Christ. Again, you were and I was and am and myself a sponge, a broken cistern, a giver rather than a taker. And don't we still see this in ourselves when we're not walking in repentance and faith? We're often so quick to take what we want regardless of how it's going to affect others. And we're slow to sacrifice our own comforts and preferences so that others can be blessed. And for someone, and this was all of us with before Christ, for someone who takes and takes and serves their own selfish desires as a consistent way of life, how do those pursuits pay out? The book of Ecclesiastes gives a helpful answer. Say even that you were really good like Solomon at accumulating wealth and all the other fleshly delights on offer from the world. How life-sustaining did Solomon find all those things to be? Not at all, right? He found them to be futile, fleeting, and vain. They truly were broken cisterns, and this was much of Solomon's life, unfortunately. He sucked the life from the people around him, and he was sucked into the idolatry of his many wives as he chased his own lusts for his own sake. And he found, Ecclesiastes unfolds this, item after item after item. He found that that life was utterly impoverishing. That's how it is for each of us apart from Christ. It doesn't matter how rich we are in worldly terms, we are poor. We are bankrupt. We are utterly without resources, like a child in the gutter in the poorest and most wretched place on earth, even lower than that. And by God's eternal plan, he gives us, verse 3, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 5, he adopts us, as sons. Now let's stop there for a moment. I want to try to illustrate this astounding reality. Did any of you tune in to watch Queen Elizabeth's funeral last month? It happened to take place on my day off, and I realized at the last second it was streaming online. So I brought my computer out to the kids so they could see, and we all kind of watched together some of the pomp and circumstance. And the tradition and the splendor surrounding the death of Britain's monarch, I have to say, was pretty impressive. All the military men, the horses, the custom vehicles, all the people lining the street, the flowers, the bagpipes, the swords, the guns, the castle, the palace grounds. It really was, and we only watched it for about 15 minutes, but it was a sight to behold. Now imagine, and this is regardless of whatever you might think of King Charles and his reputation, 
Imagine he invited you to be next to him that day. That would be something of an honor, right? Even if he's not the most honorable guy, it would be quite an honor to be next to him for an event like that. Now imagine that he finds a poor, despised, diseased person living on the street, and he invites that person to be by his side. And then add to that, not only is that person poor, despised, and diseased, he ended up that way in part because he was treasonous against the British crown. Now imagine this. Not only does King Charles clean this guy up and ask him to accompany him at such an important event, he grants him a full pardon and elevates him to the same status as the crown prince. He adopts him and makes him equal to Prince William and heir together with him of the throne and all the riches of the British crown. That's absurd, isn't it? And friends, that doesn't even approach the infinite nature of the riches to which we, Calvary Bible Church, have been elevated. You, and this is true corporately, and it's true of you individually, you have been made a child of the king. Just like it would be absurd, even unjust, for King Charles to make a traitor equal to the heir of the throne, it would have been absurd and unjust for God to forgive you and to make you an heir together with his son, except for what we read in verse 7. Paul writes, In him, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of his grace. Beloved, this is everything for us. How can we have God's riches? How is it okay? How is it just? How is it righteous for him to make us sons and daughters? Because he has redeemed us at an infinite price. We have redemption through his blood. You see, God had taught, starting in Genesis 3, when he slaughtered one of his animals to make a covering for Adam and Eve's nakedness. God had taught that he, by spilling blood that belongs to him, would make a substitutionary payment for the sins of his people. But as we see in the repeated sacrifices of animals in the Old Testament, and as the Hebrews writer spells out explicitly, the blood of bulls and goats can never finally take away sin. Beloved, it was necessary for the Son of God himself to come. It was necessary for Jesus, the God-man, to live the sinless life we could not. It was necessary for him, the spotless Lamb of God, to take on our poverty and to be clothed with our sin. So that as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God could make him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Friends, that is the great exchange. He took our sin and death. We get his righteousness and life. He took our poverty and our filthy rags. And we see here more clearly in Ephesians 1 than perhaps anywhere else in the whole Bible. We get his unfathomable riches. How rich is Jesus? How rich is this salvation that is ours? It cannot be measured in worldly wealth because Jesus owns all the wealth of the world. Jesus' riches, and therefore our riches in him, 
surpass all the wealth of the world, comprising every resource not only in the, in the universe, but extending all the way to the throne room of God. And that means that we not only count God's throne among our resources, we actually have God himself for our inheritance. Look down at verse 13. We get the Holy Spirit of promise. We get God. And that relates directly to the promises of Deuteronomy 30 and Ezekiel 36, which we read earlier. Recall further what else that promise was connected with. God promised that with the sending of his spirit, according to his promise, God would give his people a new heart, a whole heart to love him and to obey him and to do what he says so that we might be a blessing. Also, we don't want to miss the aspect of sealing. Verse 13, the Holy Spirit seals those who are his as a pledge of our inheritance. This again, beloved, should give you great confidence. When we consider how will we persevere where Israel failed, we must remember Israel has never yet had the new heart. Israel as a people has not yet known the permanent sealing of the Spirit. Individual believers had the Spirit's ministry, of course, but as a people, we read in Ezekiel 10, the Spirit left Israel. Not so for the church. Beloved, this is the unfathomably rich glory of the church. We get God, and not only that, when the Spirit came to indwell us and to seal us when we believed, Paul says, he guaranteed our perseverance unto glorification. And even still, beyond that, it says, we also became his possession. Verse 11, we have been made an inheritance. And the literal wording there is apportioned by lot. And you may recall from when the land was apportioned to Israel, what did that become for each tribe? It's inheritance. And so God apportions the church, the first people, to be his inheritance apportioned to him. Think of this. We get to be in this incredibly rich, privileged position of not only being those who get to have God and all of his riches, we also get to be those whom he treasures as his own possession for all of eternity. Friends, this is the glory of Calvary Bible Church. It is the glory of the church to be the first people fully and irrevocably united to God. As we close our time taking in these breathtaking glories this morning, I want to ask you to consider, how will you respond to these things? I want to encourage you to respond on two levels. First, personally, have you personally been humbled by the unexpected, eternally planned and unfathomably rich glory that is yours in Christ? Do you live like this is the case? You know what comes to my mind, and this might sound kind of funny, is the Disney version of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. You remember, if you've seen it, how Scrooge responds when he wakes up on Christmas morning and realizes he's alive. He's spent all night being confronted with the reality of his own selfishness and guilt and the impending reality of his own death 
and his richly deserved judgment. And when Scrooge wakes up Christmas morning and realizes he's alive and not dead, he's a new man. He's a free man. Before, he had a lot of what the world craves. He had tons of money, but he didn't have life. He didn't have a heart to be a blessing. Suddenly, Scrooge finds that from his newfound appreciation for his life and his freedom, he can't move quickly enough to bless everyone in his path. Beloved, that is a picture of what should be our heart and our response personally to these things. A heart that shouts from the rooftop like Scrooge does from his window on Christmas morning. I am free and I have inexhaustible riches. I can give generously and I will have no lack. I can give my time. I can give my money. I can be reviled and not revile in return. I can spend and spend and be poured out for others. And because my freedom and forgiveness are total and irrevocable, I will never, ever run out of the resources to continue spending and giving and being poured out. Secondly, I want to give you a more corporate encouragement. The local church, Calvary Bible Church, is a local manifestation of the very first whole people in God's redemption plan to receive these riches sealed with his spirit. As we have seen in Ephesians 1, God treasures this local church as his own possession. And so I want to ask, is the local church as precious to you as it is to God? It says in Galatians 6 verse 10 that we should do good to all as we have opportunity, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. As you probably know, we practice biblical, biblical church membership here at Calvary. We covenant with one another to be and to receive the means of grace to and from each other. And so my encouragement is, renew your commitment to loving this precious possession of Jesus. And if you aren't yet a member, take steps as soon as you can in that direction. I or any one of the elders or probably anyone sitting near you would be happy to answer any questions you might have about how to take those steps. Friends, the glory of the local church, the glory of Calvary Bible Church is indeed a breathtaking glory. Would you please join with me in prayer that the Lord would graciously seal these truths to our hearts that we might bless his name and proclaim his glory by, by how we are as his people as a result. Let's pray. Father, these riches that are ours in Christ, Father, we confess that we can't even begin to see what a humbling and glorious reality this is for us, for your church. Lord, would you send your spirit to help us, send your spirit to humble us, send your spirit to put us under this word. Father, that we might, in answer to Paul's prayer, know the riches and the power of your working towards us in Christ. Father, that it would be your glory in this local church. And Father, that it would be for our joy. And we ask in your son's name. Amen.